You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah. Reality Check Radio. You are with Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie, and it's time for Marty Gibson to join me for Media Matters, where we round up some of the media stories that you may or may not have heard about across the week. Good morning, Marty. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm good, thanks. We've gotten into a routine now, you and I, of uh, digesting ourselves of uh, the newspapers. You're, you more so than me. You've been much more diligent at this. However, I dived out and had a look at the Sunday papers. You've done actually a cross segment across the weekend and uh, through the week. So what have you got to lead off with this week? Well, there's, there's, uh, you can hear the knives being sharpened for Christopher Luxon. You can feel the election cycle starting to kick into gear. Mm -hmm. uh, the Herald on Sunday editorial basically sheeted at home and said it was about this time that in the 2020 election that National succumbed to a case of the yips around leadership. On May 22, 2020, after repeatedly poor poll results, Todd Muller replaced Simon Bridges as leader and Nikki Kaye replaced Paula Bennett as deputy leader of the, of the party. Muller lasted less than two months, citing health reasons, leading to the promotion of Judith Collins to head the party into the election. So there's, there's quite a charitable profile of, of Christopher Luxon by Andrew Vance, surprisingly. You can hear the reluctance to embrace him starting to creep in. His, his net negatives are too high. Um, mm. And it, it's a question of when National are going to wake up to that. Yeah, I, I keep having the sense that he's trying to keep his powder dry, but it's like, darling, it's time to, you know, I mean, what are we now, six months out from the election? It's time to sort of get things ignited and clearly tell people where you're sitting. I suspect he's waiting until the budget. Well, as Cam Slater said, uh, keeping your powder dry is no good if you get overrun and uh, your powder goes to your enemies. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, it's interesting with the political cycle, there's another piece from the Sunday Star Times that both you and I pulled out. There are things that, that get brought into focus every election cycle, and one of those is the three-year term of our election cycles and how that sits with decision making. Uh, this one is by Kevin Norke, and he asked the question, uh, as the country counts down to the election in six months' time, the short election cycles, do they put a handbrake on change? Now, Victoria University psychology professor Mark Wilson states, I can say the pandemic divided us into camps in relation to how it was dealt, but I suspect it's easy to exaggerate how big that cleavage is. I don't think the election will add to the turmoil, but will likely reflect it. Mm. exaggerate how big that cleavage actually is it's a little bit like hmm, right we know where you sit on that school mark well i mean john johansson who uh, was a, an advisor to winston peters i i thought it was interesting that his uh, quote was slipped into the sunday star times uh where he said people are more discerning than our elites give them credit for increased noise in our democracy is as much about the state losing its near monopoly over disinformation and misinformation and reacting to that loss of control rather than some populist uprising ruining the public square. Yeah. I'm surprised that made it into the papers. I'm pleased it made it into the papers because I think he hit the nail on the head there. The last three years, everybody, I think the, the mass populace has been treated with, 
absolute derision in terms of what they can and cannot know and can and cannot say that finally that they have when they have the ability to have their say in six months time that all of a sudden those that held that control are starting to to feel that control slipping away Uh, this is a huge topic and too long in many ways to cover off here but my feeling is that ideally we'd have people in charge of political parties who are resistant to programming and who are visionary leaders. There's some sort of culling process that ensures that we get middle managers. Hmm. I think a lot of people's distaste for Christopher Luxon arises from a rejection of corporatism, which is the wolf in sheep's clothing of capitalism. Corporatism is basically the destruction of the free market and the creation of corporate monopolies through regulatory and monopoly power of central government. I remember pretty soon after he took the leadership, Luxon was asked, you know, whether it was it was healthy for humanity to have such huge amounts of wealth in so few hands. And he cited the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as an example of it doing some good. And at that point, I thought, this is not a guy who is much more than middle management. He that tone deaf is to say that about the guy who was without any sort of medical qualification pushing the vaccines and then dumped the shares that he'd bought in them and immediately afterwards talked about how they were no good. Like you. I watched something really early on in the piece and he was uh, in an interview and he said this phrase, in my lived experience, which of course is something that comes straight from postmodernist Marxist canon. And as soon Mm. as I heard that, I was like, oh, Christopher, Christopher, Christopher. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost, it's almost a cookie cutter kind of person that, that winds up there. John Key, Todd Muller. You know, they're all of these these startled-looking corporate guys. And, um, you know, there was an interesting observation in... Yeah, Claire, Claire Trevet, Trevet observed that Chris Hipkins has turned away from the worst excesses of Ardern's wet postmodernist crap. Uh, she didn't say that. That's, those are my words. That's my interpretation. She talked about Hipkins cozying up to business. And she made the observation, Hipkins is not deluded into thinking that if he bends over backwards and flatters them, big business or the wealthy are suddenly going to flock to vote for Labour. What he is hoping for is that a more constructive relationship with the business sector will flow onto voter, onto the voters. And when I read that, I thought, you know, that's what's missing from Luxon. He's never going to get the dear leader fanatics to vote for him, but he has to signal to the middle New Zealand that he at least understands the problem. And I don't hear that from him. You know, he'll talk about cricking down on gangs in that tough guy kind of thing that that those corporate guys like to sound. He's never been in a tinny house. He's never been around really, really poor people in New Zealand. I don't think he understands that and it comes across that he doesn't understand it. That's where national always go wrong. I saw uh, in the last couple of weeks they were saying, you know, they're going to resume live um, cattle exports. Andrea Vance made the jibe, 
what is with that peculiar policy to revive live animal exports? Lads, if your base isn't sewn up by now, you're in trouble. And it's a bit like Judith Collins talking about the Resource Management Act, reforming the Resource Management Act, just boneheaded, because anyone who's worried about that is voting national or maybe act. It's yeah. not going to get those middle voters. She should have been talking about housing. Luxon should be talking about giving Kiwis more opportunities through effective education. Mm. He got some sort of good lauding over the education policy, which he put out a few weeks ago. And obviously it was mixed reviews from the other side. But generally, most parents were kind of like, yeah, that, that sounds like a great idea. But as you said, it was barely, it was literally licking his finger and popping it up in the air to see which, which way the wind was blowing, I felt. It didn't really go far enough to to dive into what a lot of those huge issues are in education you're right i think it is sort of a bit late and i mean i just haven't seen anything anywhere near decisive enough from him well, i've got and a theory about this Moon. you do have a theory about this <laughs> go on. i mean i've worked in corporate sales mm. i did five years of it and corporate sales is about features you know you're, you're making a, a, a pretty numbers-based appeal to someone and what they're looking at when you're selling whatever it is to them i mean it's partly personality and all that but mostly it's numbers and am i going to get in the crap for this so after i did corporate sales after another corporate job i sold used cars for a year and that that was a horrible job but it downloaded some software into my brain that i couldn't have got uh, in a business-to-business -business environment. You know, it's that uh, features tell, benefits sell. I don't think he's, he's um, we're not hearing the benefits. And what he's doing talking about the economy all the time is just playing into that easy criticism by the left, all national care about is money. The social side of things doesn't necessarily have to play to Labour's strengths, but, you know, you look at, in terms of families, one actual piece of news that dropped yesterday was around a study that had come out saying that they felt that families, particularly single parent families, were being stigmatised when they were dealing with welfare agencies. Yet there was no information or there's no positive change outside of the fringe conservative parties around protecting the sanctity of the family and how important that is mm. and he's he's not doing any of those things he is just as you said he's he's not selling the benefits he's only discussing the features i think he's probably a really nice guy and and you know he's obviously a capable businessman but the, the difference between managing a corporation and managing a country is that in a country you'd fire a lot of people if they were in a corporation your net taxpayers are only about 20% of families. If I were Chris Bishop and I was running the national campaign, what would you do? Yeah. I'd definitely be talking about what all the issues are that we know are not working currently in the current environment that this government is spending all the time trying to apply optics over instead of sitting on a fence with a slug gun which is what david seymour tends to do and fires off little pot shots in the ass of whoever he gets in his sights on that day and he does it very very effectively and very well uh, i would actually be trying to say problem solution problem solution problem solution there's none of that there's sort of mm. often there'll be gaping political opportunities that they don't capitalize on and when he does he does rub me up the wrong way i don't know what it is with him Chris, Chris Bishop. Chris Bishop. Rubs you know me what I think it is? I, I think it's this misnomer that young people getting into politics brings youthful ideas. 
It really doesn't. What it brings is a bunch of egotistical young upstarts who ape older politicians and are mentored by them. And it almost continues the dysfunction. If I were Chris Bishop, the first thing I'd do is fire myself and you know get someone who actually has a bit more world experience. I'd be talking about the effect of how terrible gangs are for New Zealand society, especially the people who live around them and are in their families. Mm. It's a festering point of decay. Even the people in the gangs. You know, any time I've spent with gangs, I always try if, I, if, if I'm around a gang member and I can kind of get them to one side, I always, always kind of like to say quietly, it must suck being in a gang, does it? You know, doing all this horrible shit to people. And, and you know, two or one, the look over their shoulder and say, yeah, yeah, it does. And, and they're the most stressful situations you can be in. People are always on guard and it's and waiting for a fight to break out. It's probably an environment they feel comfortable in. Um, well, it's one that they've, for many of them, it is just an extension of yeah. their childhoods, isn't it? I'd be talking about the difference between short-term kindness and long-term kindness. And I'd get labor off that moral high ground of being mm. kind. You know, if, if you've got someone who's a meth addict, short-term kindness the kindest thing to do is give them some meth. Long-term kindness, the kindest thing you could do is probably call the cops and get them some treatment. National's got to get out of that. You're just about the money. You don't care about people. It's amazing how often I've seen it. I'm surprised they haven't zeroed in on it. They're just, as I said, talking to the, they're preaching to the choir, talking about their live animal exports. Yeah, that, that one just astounds me, to be honest, because those live animal exports literally leave from less from a, less than a kilometre from when I, where I'm sitting. In fact, when those ships are in port, you can smell. Mm. You can smell that the ships are in port. And why are we exporting our agricultural intellectual property offshore? Because it's not all just animals for slaughter. You know, I mean, it yeah, is... Breeding stock. There's breeding stock. Why are we doing that? I, I just For some reason, we sent kiwi fruit over to South America. To answer your question, yeah, I completely agree. I think they're more focused on trying to appear that they're up with the political fashions of the moment and that they're also all over that when actually they need to find their own voice. And they need, as you said, they need to have uh, a view of long-term kindness and actually show us a vision out of this. Uh, Groundswell were, were getting that, I can't even remember what the petition was about, but they were trying to get 150,000 signatures. I wrote to them, I never heard back, and I said, you know, you might be better off getting 150,000 people to join the National Party and vote some of these Peter Goodfellow people out, you know, take control over it again. They're, they're riding this all the way down. It, it really is a heads you lose, tails they win thing. Well, the difficulty that I think National now have is that if they're not careful and they don't start doing that, they're going to lose a lot of ground to these minor parties. And if Seymour keeps doing what he's doing, the Act will actually start becoming the clear second party in New Zealand. And he, and it's purely because he's got a much clearer sense of self of what they represent, whereas National, I, I think National have an identity crisis. I really, truly believe they don't know who they are. Mm. The media and what I've seen, particularly with what David Parker put out last week around with the IRD and listing out who the, the richest actually were and how little tax they pay. I sent you a text over the weekend saying to you, do you get this feeling that they're actually setting up this whole 
environment of envy. So whoever the spin doctors are massaging the media, there definitely is an element of us and them. And it has been, I just really felt it this week in the papers. I mean, Parker did it with the, uh, these are the rich and they're not paying tax. Even just as something as little, and I know this is going to sound really trivial, but it's the same, it falls into the same camp. I just pulled up a, it was in the, the Sunday magazine in the Sunday Star Times, a fluff piece. It was a living piece. And it was called At Home with Christina Cabot. Aucklander Christina Cabot is forging ahead with growth plans for the Kindness Institute, an organization she founded that uses mindfulness, meditation, and yoga to help vulnerable Kiwi kids, despite a brain injury, has made her even more in need of her own medicine. Cabot, 35, lives in a rented house in Onehunga with her, her partner, daughter, and flatmates. What a really bizarre thing to have in the subheading. Mm. Lives in a rented house in Onihanga with her partner, daughter, and flatmates. I don't give a rat's ass where she lives. Yeah, well, I mean, in yesterday's Herald, there was a sigh, a feminist lawyer, Sasha Borisenko, uh, wrote a, uh, an article, The Path to Letting IRD Get Its Claws Into the Rich. Clause spelt C-L-A-U-S-E. And once he said the average Richie Poo paid an effective tax rate of 8.9%. Now I read Lenin's speeches that led to the slaughter of rape and uh, of the kulaks in the Ukraine. And you could hear that politics of envy. And just as I can hear the Holomador coming in that kind of language, that that stigmatizing. I know a lot, you know a lot of rich people. I'm not. I wouldn't describe myself as financially rich, but I know, I know a lot of rich people. In a lot of ways, I'd rather have my own problems. Mm. I don't. I know the single-mindedness it takes to get there. I know that those people often have resentful children. You know, and I know that they're vital to the running of an economy. I know that they don't get there overnight. But it's also to creating that envy is relinquishing someone away from self-responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that not everyone who isn't as financially viable as they would like, that it's, you know, entirely their fault. A cheap shot, isn't it? It's, it's... There are very good reasons people are poor. Yeah. Again, getting back to Luxon, you know, that there's that dichotomy where people, and I'll say right-wing, even though I don't like the phraseology, believe that People who are poor would would get rich if they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, and the left think that people who are poor would would be better off if there just wasn't all the systemic uh, intersectional stuff going against them. No one talks about IQ. You know, if you've got an IQ of eighty, uh, it's really hard. You know, there's so much we take for granted. And so, someone who is you know a self-made man like John Key or, or Christopher Luxon, you know, they really do believe, hey, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And it's like, no, no, they can't. And and so that fostering that resentment, that sense of that you've been somehow treated unjustly by a system that wants to see you fail. The number of young Maori kids who are told that, if you talk to anyone who works with them, it's astonishing. And I think it drives a lot of criminality. Another envy piece I picked up was uh, in the Sunday paper, but it was originally published in the OTT, Private and Public Treatment, A Matter of Life and Death. And it's the story of two brothers, both of which were diagnosed with prostate cancer at the same time. They're in the Southern District. And you may remember I did 
covered a piece of a woman couldn't even make the cataract waiting list uh, in the southern district and essentially one brother was able to afford private uh, health care for his prostate cancer assuming, assuming he had probably private medical insurance and the other one did not and he relies on the public system one of them is treated and is healthy and the other one and brother with the having to rely on public treatment is now the cancer is bolted and he is now dying so it is utterly tragic mm. but what's the public system education health whatever is no longer fit for purpose mm. you have this paradoxic um effect where people who can afford to get out of it do and people who can't suffer it i mean there's another article in i think it was the weekend herald about private obstetricians being denied access in auckland and and the um the subtext was well giving women cesarean sections unnecessarily it's the whole pot too posh to push thing correlation doesn't equal causation problem striking again but you know the fact if you can afford a private obstetrician you're often older which leads to more complications mm. and if you've had complications before you want a private obstetrician because one in 20 births goes wrong the rest doesn't matter if there's not even a midwife there generally you know you and i know having been parents that in new zealand is really unusual actually i mean i don't think a lot of kiwis realize how unusual the situation is in this country for birthing and the fact that this is a midwife driven society now i'm not saying that midwives don't do a good job at all i had an outstanding, 19 out of 20 times they do a great job yeah i had an outstanding midwife the reality of it is is that they aren't obstetricians and as you said there is that I remember a figure around the time that I think I had our second son and it was something along the lines that I think it was either one in three or one in four births required obstetric intervention that led to cesarean section. There was, and it was around the time that there was concerns about delays getting into theatre or getting theatre capacity to be able to maintain that and also the ability to access obstetric care due to a, sh a shortage of consultant obstetrics. You know, that was 15 years ago. I remember when Helen Clark shouldered GPs out of obstetrics, which was a, a, bless a hidden blessing for them. I mean, I, you know, my, my father was working 80, 80 hours a mm. week often. I think he delivered something like 200 babies a year it was it was incredible and just a, it was always on call mm. but once they did that the uh, the cesarean section rate doubled and uh mortality of of mothers went up now if that had been the other and and the big sell was well this is a patriarchal system and women should rightly be running it if it had happened the other way it's mm. a bit like you know 50 percent more women than men going on to tertiary study, there would have been outrage, it would have been a sign of all sorts of things. And, and even outside of those figures, there were some stupid, I don't know, this happened to a friend of ours even two years ago, just these terribly long labours end in caesarean section because they've run out of options to use syntax to, to speed up a labour because they're trying to do it naturally. And there's these horrific stories. Again, it should be a priority to talk about that, but because it's clothed in all this language around gender, sexual politics, we're missing the people we should be looking after most, which is the children. You are with Media Matters here on Reality Check Radio. I'm Marie, and my partner in crime, as always, is Marty Gibson. Marty, I want to move on to 
a piece that Peter Williams covered last week, and it was with Professor Grant Schofield. He put a blog out on the 30th of April, and Peter spoke with him. And I really strongly suggest that you have a look at our replay page at realitycheck.radio and click on replays and look for Peter Williams's show. His interview with this chap was excellent. Grant Schofield is a professor at AUT in Auckland. I really could not believe that this had been written and put out there. It's entitled The Science of Human Potential, a falling out of love letter to the university, dot, 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 we need to talk. He says, Mm. I think I, I have lost my love because we no longer deliver in the most important part of what we promise to do. We are no longer the critic and conscience of society. Our role has never been, nor should it be, to have political views left or right. My view has been that we're radical centrists. A radical centrist will judge all views on evidence. We train the next generation to do so. I just want to touch on this of being a radical centrist. I know Matthew McConaughey, this is something that he talks about, is that he like he always considers himself a centrist because he likes to walk down the middle of the road and then he can see what's coming from both directions. My question is, is where is the middle of the road these days? We should have believed these guys when they talked about the long march to the institutions in the 60s. They said they were going to do this and they did it. They've corrupted the well, they've corrupted the whole education system. That's what our show is about. The number of people in in uh, an arts faculty who identify as right, I mean, they're almost extinct. Hmm. Everyone is a less freedom, big government proponent. And it's well, disgusting. He, well, he touches on this. We are no longer centrists. We have drifted to the political left, way left. And the leftist view, which has many ver- merits, and many downfalls cannot be debated with impunity. We are strong on virtue signaling. We are strong on stating opinions rather than facts. We are weak on confrontation, but strong on behind the scenes bullying. Yeah. I mean, I I, uh, returned to my university where I studied as a young man a couple of years ago Waikato University. I took a, uh, a paper, a master's paper that was based out of the education department. And yeah, a lot of Foucault in there. And just the worshipful attitude to those French perverts is is uh, sickening to me. You know, these guys, these are the guys who had some uh, petition that they gave to the French parliament for abandoning any age of consent, even down to infants. And I put that to a teacher because she said to me, oh, I love Foucault. And I said, did you know about that? Hmm. Florida recently um, moved to give child rapists the death penalty. And I think some gay rights organization uh, said, Florida is no longer safe for us. It's like, when's the C getting into the LBGT plus? When's the Z getting in there? You know, there's always been an accusation that's been denied, but it's creeping up. Mm. It's just some horrible euphemism to to um, to hide a disgusting. Oh, the minor thing. attracted persons. Yeah, minor attracted persons. Good mm. God. I know. I mean, it's all about a manipulation of language, and they use, as you said, an awful euphemism to 
to hide it up. Schofield continues saying academia's COVID response was a great example of how we transitioned. The wholesale cancelling of fundamental human rights around vaccine mandates without robust arguments, let alone sufficient evidence, caused more harm than benefit. Who knows what writing this will actually mean for me, but it's been written and I must be. I'm way nearer the end than the start of my career. I could stop tomorrow and I would be immensely proud of what I've achieved, but I'll also be ashamed, embarrassed, and most of all, not me if I failed to disagree with the elephants in the lecture halls and the labs of our universities right now. Now, I fully admire him standing up. And I mean, you've said this previously on other shows that even too with uh, medicine, those ones that are finding their voices are often at the ends of their career. And it's great that he is starting to do that. Uh, we need more Professor Grant Schofields to actually stand up and call out the absolute ridiculousness that is there. Universities, which should be a place for discussion and debate and disagreeableness and all of those things in in terms of discourse has now just completely gone they've become institutions of indoctrination and i do wonder whether or not what we're seeing in regards to i think every other university with the exception of canterbury university has seen a drop in enrollments international students simply aren't coming back is this the fact that parents and students have seen these institutions have gone woke and they're just voting with their wallets and they're not sending? I mean, you mentioned Simon Thornley, the University of Auckland mm. epidemiologist who initially spoke out against the um, the uh, mRNA vaccines. I've met Simon. What a great guy. Pressure he came under after that. No, you know, I'm not betraying any confidences because he took his position that, yeah, I was wrong. Sorry about that. You know, he wasn't wrong. No. What, what happened to him was wrong after he spoke out out of concern for his fellow citizens. Oh, no. And he's, I mean, fortunately, he's currently um, able to continue his work. I mean, what he has gone through from a human resources perspective at that university is, is appalling, absolutely appalling. It's a little bit like your conversation about gangs. It's they have these universities lowered themselves like a gang where you're continually having to if you do what you're told and you stay within the orthodoxy of the gang you're okay but the minute you actually step a toe out of line you're forever looking over your shoulder just Mm. in case there's a knife that's going to be in your back yeah i mean it's the old thing it's the turning off the alarms in the mine you know those people those contrarians are the are the alarm system that we shut down at our peril because eventually they're right. Well, in terms of alarms, the, one of the dousings of this was interesting. As I said, I sent you that text on the weekend talking about envy. And you said, well, actually, I'm, I've just sat down. I'm watching Q&A. Okay, well, I'll throw the tally on and have a look at Q&A myself and see what's on. And I caught the end of Nicola Willis. And then it led into, and his name is gone, but the, I think it's the vice chancellor of AUT was on, who you mentioned in a piece last week. Mm. I had no idea who this Chappers. He is obviously very smart. He was the first Rhodes Scholar of Polynesian descent. There was questioning around his experience at Oxford. And I was stunned. I mean, I don't know who this man is. I am sure he's utterly brilliant in whatever field that he's in. He, I mean, he's got a Rhodes Scholarship. He's obviously not stupid. He's obviously a very bright chap. Yeah. But he was sitting there 
bagging the institution of Oxford and Rhodes Scholarship in terms of its colonial and ideological viewpoint in terms mm. of the foundations of the West and how wrong that was and how he's trying to bring something different to AUT and how essentially that is wrong and what he's going to do is right. And I was just sitting there thinking, is it me or you sounding decidedly ungrateful that you are literally biting the hand that fed you, that gave you this incredible educational opportunity, but because it didn't fit with your ideological purview, it's therefore evil, so it must be... I don't even know if it's ideological. I I think it's racist, basically, because, you know, when, when we work with this assumption that once someone's got a portion of Maori or Polynesian in them, they become a different species. If you understand the pressures that someone comes under when they go to university and Befano or you know start to wonder if they're getting too smart, eh? So they're somehow obligated often to talk about what a terrible system it is and how it's you know there's all of this racism. Uh, basically, just to sort of stay in the group, like oh, I'm on your side still. Hey, you should get a good education. It's great. It opens up the whole world to you. Your kids do better. Everything's better. Come on, bro. Come on. Mm. Get some books in the house. Yeah, well, that's the old Alan Duff model, isn't it? Yeah, good old Alan Duff. And I thought the juxtaposition of him having that interview days after the the Schofield piece had come out, and I thought, "Mm, I'd love to know what's going on in that faculty lounge now at AUT. Essentially, Schofield has come out completely. Everything that he said in his piece was contradicted yep. by by him at that point. Oh, so. it's um, yeah. I mean, there's that thing, and I think Jordan Peterson often says that your average professor doesn't earn as much as a CEO by quite a long way, and they resent it. Oh yeah, they resent it. And if you look at who drives these murderous purges and revolutions, they often are academics they're often in there administering the gulags mm. you know if, if your child's looking at taking on as i said that hundred thousand dollar debt you've really got to say well you know what are they getting for it and you know he was talking about a son going through and going mm. that course was crap that course was woke and you know kids aren't stupid like you 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 those are 18 year olds that are coming through now are some of the most conservative people that they've been since the second world war because they've had to swallow all this crap and they know it's bullshit doesn't bear close scrutiny that whole idea that the only reason there's a hierarchy is because of a power imbalance it will be very very interesting to see what unfolds actually at aut i think you know kudos for professor schofield for putting that out there um it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of uh his ongoing employment i mean they they tried to drag simon thornley through the mud uh he was brought up yeah, I think for t- bringing the the university into disrepute, mm. you know, the stress that he went through in terms of fighting that is immeasurable. Oh, he was stressed when I talked to him. It hadn't been that long. I think it'd be about, you know, not long since. And he's got young kids. He's got a mm. wife. He's got a mortgage. Yeah. What that does is sends a message to every other academic that if you pop your head above the parapet, this is what we're going to do to you. A nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Yeah. We kill and, the chickens to train the monkeys. 
Yes, exactly. And it is just a theme that we see again and again and again. And I just saw that with Salisa on the weekend. To sit on a national station talking about, TVNZ, talking about his perceived negative experiences of what he got at Oxford University during his Rhodes Scholarship, I actually found it deeply ungrateful. If I had if I'd worked my tripes out and had gotten myself a Rhodes Scholarship and had gotten myself off there, I would be like, thank you to this institution for providing this opportunity for me. This is now what I'm going to do. This is the learning that I've taken from this institution. And this is what I'm going to go off and do in whatever field that I want to do and make things better. Whereas the entire time, that entire interview, I just thought, you ungrateful little shit. Well, all those Ivy <laughs> Old lady institutions are... Um are hopelessly woke now. So, I mean, you know, you can look at their history and, and I mean, you could, he could easily have put a positive spin on it that they've made a lot of uh, changes in the direction that suits uh, lefty academia. It's that feeding into that oppositional dumbing down culture that's killing black America and uh, is being imported and hosed all over Maori and Pacifica as well. A real injustice to children, anti-intellectual politics of envy. Universities actually in this country aren't the only places that are experiencing um, potential mass layoffs. In the United States at the moment, the layoffs there are continuing. Mass layoffs on tech giants Meta, Amazon, Lyft spread now to Disney, Walmart and beyond. What's forcing the firings and what industries are at high alert? Giant retail group Bed Bath & Beyond, which isn't linked to the one in this country, uh, I think same branding but different company entities. They are now uh, they've filed for bankruptcy. Disney is laying off thousands of employees this week, as well as their ongoing battles with um, Governor DeSantis in Florida. And the ride-sharing giant Lyft is cutting 25% of its workforce. Now I don't know about you. I mean I'm not hearing anything. I mean I picked this up from The Daily Wire, which is an openly conservative news channel. No one appears to be covering these layoffs that are that, that are plaguing the US at the moment. And these are huge, huge numbers. Like we're talking this year alone, Zoom cut 15% of its workforce, laying off 1,300 workers. Dell axed 6,600 positions. Salesforce laid off 8,000. Coinbase laid off 20%. Microsoft laid off 10,000. Google cut 12,000. Where do all these people go for starters? I mean, to me, these are a lot of laptop lifestylers that were all bought on during those COVID years. Make work jobs. Make work jobs. Bullshit jobs, as Matthias Desmet used to call them. So it's really intriguing. I'm wondering whether or not them having to face a little bit of economic reality will be quite good from uh, what is easy to have affluent ideological leanings or, you know, a little bit of real world, as they might say, and whether or not that is going to be contagious and we'll start seeing things like this down here. Well, it's the, it's the Ernest Hemingway, uh, someone asked him how, how he'd gone bankrupt. They said, well, slowly at first and then really quickly. And I think Richard Preble um, said about economic uh, conditions, everyone's always surprised with how long it lasts and how quickly it changes. You know, I was in Venezuela in 2004 and it was a nice country. A lot of fully stocked uh, supermarket shelves. It was only a few years later that uh, children were starving to death and the government was addressing the problem by 
forbidding doctors from putting that down as a cause of death. It doesn't take much kindness and uh, equity to um, to crash the system. And I think I think that uh, we're about to see the quickly phase. We've lived through the uh, fuck around and we're in the find out part of it now. Here we've seen, uh, I think it was Peter Williams last week was talking about the number of journalists that have left journalism and it was a staggering number. It's gone down by half. Yeah, by half, staggering number. Conversely, the uh, public spin department uh, numbers have, you know, that's obviously where they've gone. But the government in this country can't employ everybody, surely. Well, you know, reading the stories in the paper, you, you know, when you when you write a newspaper article, there's that prioritising so you can snip the bottom of it and it'll still make sense and you've got the most important stuff in there. I'm, I'm seeing a, a move away from that. I think AI will be filling the, pa- the papers pretty easily. It's really not that readable. You know, if you read, read a really good journalist's story before crosses the uh, comprehension membrane pretty easily and there's there's some strong languages picked out as i said last week you know now there's just this unholy alliance in the papers between the huge big box advertising pages government spin doctors make work academics and other press releases that have been jigged around a bit and had a journalist's name put on them because they've got to write five or six stories a day to fill the hungry paper did you see the ad that I think it was in the Sunday Star Times that was placed up with the announcement I think that was made in the rotunda at the Beehive from the team at Stuff? Did you, yeah. I think you picked that up? Yeah. Uh, yeah, about the the, the the post reporting to you, not the Beehive. And I, I will confess, I, I flattered us a little bit when I saw that, thinking, uh, you know, I, I don't think it is, but yeah, 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 right. Reporting to you, not the Beehive. Paid for by the Beehive. Did you read the Shane Shane Tapo's opinion piece in the Sunday Herald on Sunday? It's like it came straight. Well, he is kind of a government PR in an age where mainstream media is being threatened by disinformation spreading upstarts. There need to be reputable news sources dedicated to providing quality information to the public. Upstarts. It's also define reputable. Who, who, yeah. who, it's like, who, who assigns misinformation and disinformation, you know? Who gets to assign the label gets to assign the truth. In the more unhinged corners of the internet and increasingly at political meetings, you'll hear wild-eyed claims that the government has bought the media through New Zealand On Air and the Public Interest Journalism Fund. It's not true, of course. Why is it not true, Shane? Those funds are independent of the government and help pay for journalists to do things that shine more light on government activities, such as reporting on council meetings, political podcasts, blah, 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 blah. It's, uh, there are none so blind as the, them that will not see. Across the page from that, actually, I pulled out, um, I actually pulled out the Heather Duplessis Ellen piece, which around the envy that we sort of touched on earlier. But below that is the piece from Shinny Lal. And I've just had a little look here, and I, I think, I've, I know you joined this connection for me last week, but I missed it. Conservatism is a dying trait in my generation. Young people do not have an appetite for oppression, they say. I remember when videos of Prime Minister of Finland, Sana Martin, were leaked there was an investigation into her misconduct and what she um what did she do drank a little alcohol and dance 
something nearly all adults in Western countries are doing. These standards of behaviour are rooted in misogyny, queerphobia, ageism, and I refuse to live by them. Somehow I don't think Sana Martin was thinking about queer phobia, misogyny or ageism when she got pissed and had a bit of a sing song and a dance on a table on a on a bender. There you go. But this was the next um, paragraph. And I think, <laughs> see, I've just had some dots joined. When I entered the world of politics at 18, Labour MP Jenny Salisa, is that not the wife of our professor that I just mentioned? It's a big club and you're not in it. I am obviously not. I'm yeah. obviously it, not. It was a petulant, it was a petulant uh, and, and it should be in the paper. You know, like, great. Yeah, there, there, was another, there was another story which which was in the Weekend Herald about a Kiwi guy who'd glued himself to a bridge and caused all sorts of mayhem. Yeah, Morgan Trow, Trowland, who's a 40-year-old civil engineer from Ashburton, justified what he was doing by saying it's an absolute act of treason, selling all of ourselves and our children into an uninhabitable earth. And I believe it's my duty to do anything in my power to stop it. It's it's that the, these are the people who have been raised by activist academics. They really do think we're all about to cook and the world's about to end and everyone hates them and wants to oppress them. Uh, I mentioned uh, before Jay Unwin's uh, book on, on uh, the decline of civilizations, and he, he observed in studying something like 86 civilizations that uh, don't just go into decline, they, they, they crash, that uh, once you take the brakes off uh, the stigmas around premarital sex, you've got three generations before it hits the ground. And that's why people are cross at the baby boomers. That's the first have your cake and eat it too generation. And we were the kind of second where we got this uneasy feeling that something bad was going to happen. It's, it reminds me of that line uh, in Austin Powers where Vanessa says to him, Mr. Powers, my job is to acclimatize you to the 90s. You know, a lot's changed since 1967. And Austin Powers says, no doubt, love, but as long as people are still having promiscuous sex with as many anonymous partners without protection, while at the same time experimenting with mind-expanding drugs in a consequence-free environment, I'll be as sound as a pound. These people are at that stage of, of the decline that Unwin talked about where rationality goes out the window and people basically just get into consequence-free pleasure-seeking. I don't know what I should be more alarmed about is the fact that how true or prescient Unwin is or the fact that you have that quote completely memorised that you can rattle off just like that. Oh, the Austin Powers one. The Austin Powers. dream, right? <laughs> Look, should we just finish off on a uh, delightful little proxy war, shall we? There's nothing like a wee proxy war before lunch. I can't remember which programme it was on, but yeah, have you noticed every politician is just, I mean, Mahuta said this any time she was asked about uh, China. It's like, well, cl climate change is our biggest security threat. And there was a program about, you know, scientists said New Zealand could survive an, a, a nuclear winter in the Northern Hemisphere uh, in terms of producing food. And, you know, someone else said, well, you know, climate change, not nuclear war is our biggest threat. It's like, well, there's a proxy war between America and Russia starting in Africa to top off the one that they've started in the Ukraine is it really yeah exactly so what we're talking about is a sudanese conflict at the moment they're madly trying to get uh western diplomats and 
aid workers out of the region. Uh, you've got the government, uh, the Sudanese military, their leader there is Abdel Fattah al-Buran, and the commander of a group called the Rapid Support Forces led by Mohammed Hamdan Dugalo. They're sort of fighting it out. And the way that I've seen, I have had a look in traditional legacy media sources is that you've got two warring factions uh, one in the government and one in this independent group and they're sort of duking it out over war crimes and atrocities and essentially uh, the usual story that you often see in these nations however the backstory goes a little bit further than that now i'm not going to say i'm an ex expert on um, african conflicts but what i haven't seen in legacy media is like all of these conflicts they are deeply deeply com complicated russia and ukraine is uh, no different what they haven't talked about is the fact that the government in sudan have agreed to allow a russian funded port a hot water port on the red sea which apparently the russians have been wanting for quite some time they also aren't particularly fond of the americans after the clinton administration bombed some medicine plants claiming that it was retaliation for chemical weapons plants back with al-qaeda and and of course they weren't and the apology was very scant and now all of a sudden uh, the diplomacy and the aid that was poured in there by the americans has been rebuffed and all of a sudden this sort of opposition group seems to be very very well funded and uh, trying to push and overthrow a government based on what's going on and i just on the surface of this without even scratching too deep i just looked at this and thought gosh this that sounds a little bit like what happened in ukraine a decade ago deja vu all over again i mean yeah there's plenty of commentary and i i haven't picked it out for for this show particularly because it is again you know there's a lot of complex history you know but they're framing russia as as an aggressor here they'd never talk about the cia sponsored coup in 2015 or that they immediately started bombing the, the Donbass region, killing some 14,000 people, ethnic Russians. Again, it, it must be comforting just to, to read the paper and believe it. Look, to quote Neil Oliver, it's never about what they say it is about, is it? No, no. I do have something quite nice. A boy saves the day as a bus driver falls ill. A little hero shows courage and steers a vehicle to safety. He was on his school bus where his driver slumped over the wheel. Seconds later, Dylan jumped into action, hitting the brake peel, clutching at the steering wheel. I, I don't know that I could have done it any better, says the superintendent of the schools. And this young chap, yeah, he did a, did a good job. So there you go. There's something nice to finish on. I was a bit a bit shamed by your curl and positivity, and and so I uh, I thought I'd read you your well our because we're, we're both our birthdays the same our, our horoscope our astrology. If you're worried about going against the wishes of the group, don't. The group cannot wish; only people can, and each does it differently. Assume there are many interpretations and lots of wiggle room. So if that's not a green light to be an upstart, Shane to Poe. I don't know what is. Oh, actually, the one in the Sunday Star Times was much the same. You won't have to worry about networking or, out or outreach because doing what you love will draw the like-minded to you. Your enthusiasm has magnetism. Revel in what you find exciting about the endeavor and share it. So here we are. There you go. 
On that note, well, thank you very much for joining me again this week. There will be more, I am sure, to talk about. This has been Media Matters with Marty Gibson, myself, Marie, on Counterculture. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, Reality Check Radio.